We're going to start the homily time here at the beginning um, with a little moment of reflection that I need from you. I'm going to give you a few seconds to envision heaven on earth. You've used that phrase, I'm sure, sometime in your life. You have had a moment where you said, oh my gosh, this is heaven on earth. Or maybe you said, this has to be what paradise is like. This is, this is it. So take a moment and remember when it is you have used that phrase. Okay, so now I want to hear from you. I need you to shout out an adjective, I mean a descriptor of this. What word would you use to, to describe this? Anybody, I need a word. Any words? Peaceful, overflowing, serene. What is it? Happy, family. What else? What? Joyful? Nature? Energized? There's somebody over here. Pure? Anybody else? Warm? <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> and how far did you have to travel for that? Just think in your mind for a minute. Did you have to go far for it? Could you walk? Or did you have to take some form of transportation? Maybe a car, an airplane? Maybe it cost you something to get there? I imagine there was some form of preparation. No matter what, even if it was family and it happened to be in your own house and it was around a fire, somebody had to build the fire, right? Or you had to invite the people over or you had to make sure there was food or something, right? Some level of preparation. We anticipate heaven, that place of serenity and joy and family and peace, of energy and purity. And we say, oh my gosh, when will that come again? And how can I make it stay when we've had those moments here on earth? It also seems that we remember these in times especially of suffering. It brings to our attention more vividly, again, how much we long for that. And when I reflect even just on this last week, I hear that prayer come up in me again. When will something, when will this be made right when will that which we long for be established? I can think of the, na the nature, um, the fires burning in California this week. We know people who live in Ventura County who had to evacuate their homes. So it came really close to us to think about their suffering. And then the suffering of their neighbors and their friends, people they directly know who were affected by the wildfires the, the people who were fighting the fires are people they know. And you wonder, how long? When will this end? Or I think about the news of um, our president suggesting that we move the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. And I've been to the Holy Land twice, and my first trip there, I was impressed and humbled by the discovery of how much of Western thinking I had put upon my understanding of that place. I had no idea how deeply my understanding of Jerusalem and the Holy Land was influenced by the fact that I live over here. I bought a book on that first trip. Of, um, it was about an inch thick. It's about this size. 
that seeks to capture within it all of the treaties of peace that have been made around that land, going back to the David, King David's time, and reflects in statistics and shading and colors the journey of the boundaries and who's in charge and who has suffered because of who's in charge. I bought it at an English um, print bookshop. And it has in the back um, a composition of all of the treaties that have never made it for very long of peace in that region. When we were there this last trip, we went to Nazareth, as we've done before, and um, one of our parishioners learned from one of their parishioners at coffee hour, because yes, they even have coffee hour at Episcopal churches in Nazareth. Every Episcopal church has a coffee hour. And we were having coffee with them, and one of the women said to one of the people on our trip that she has no hope now for peace in that land, at least not as far as kingdoms go. All of the attempts to bring about a peaceful place have fallen short so much that she's given up hoping for a peaceful place. I know of families that can't make it across boundaries for funerals, who have had to miss the funeral of their mother because of the checkpoints that have been established there. So I'm not even going to try to explain the heartache that I am certain this news brought about of people that we know over there. It's complicated, it's long, it's entangled, but any violence that comes about is because of the grief of so many peaceful failed peaceful attempts. Knowing that suffering, again, I'm reminded of how long. When will peace reign? And then we have the effects in our own nation of sexual assaults and accusations and the what is changing in our reality because of that news coming to light. And no wonder, too, when will this change? When will we have the peace that we long for? In the second letter of Peter, he's addressing a community that's asking those same questions. They're looking for the kingdom to come, Jesus to return. He said he would come back, and now it's been a couple generations since Jesus' death and resurrection, and still we're waiting. And it's hard to wait. The letter of 2 Peter is intended to encourage the faithful to keep waiting. Because waiting is hard. God will fulfill God's promises, the author says. Please keep waiting. Now, I dare say that if I were to suggest that we wait here for something, it would be quite a challenge in some respects. It seems that when I say to people that we need to wait on the Lord, they envision sitting still with their hands in their laps. But I don't think that's what God is asking of us. Perhaps if I said we need to wait before we start worship, you would sit there quietly with your hand in your lap for, I would guess, one minute. I think that after a minute, and I was going to do some Google research to see who studied how long people can wait, but I would guess that after a minute, you'd have to do something. You might um, pull your phone out and just quietly answer the text that you got right when you pulled into the parking lot. Or maybe you would clean off the emails that you meant to clean off, but you hadn't gotten around to doing that. It's just a quiet activity, and no one will notice. It'll be right here on your lap, and it won't make any sound. Maybe you would clean out your fingernails as you sat here. 
but you wouldn't keep your hands in your lap for long. I dare say, I don't think it would last longer than one minute. And then after maybe two minutes or so, your mind might start to wander, and you might think, you know, what is in this Book of Common Prayer? I was meaning to look. I kept meaning to see what else is in here, since we don't pull it out of the little rack very often. Maybe I'll do some prayers. There's got to be something in here to kind of keep my mind busy while we're waiting. Or maybe you would start to make your grocery list, remembering you forgot to add something to it because no one went to the grocery yesterday, so all of us will be there today. And you're making your notes so that you don't forget because Lord knows you don't want to go back twice on this day. Maybe you would do that. Or maybe you would, well, trying to be quiet, maybe you would not turn and talk to your neighbor yet if they should catch your eye. Maybe you would, though, get up and go to the bathroom because that's a quiet activity and you'd be right back anyway to finish waiting. Do you see how active waiting is? It's not a sedentary activity. We don't sit there with our hands in our lap, quietly waiting. And after a while, we usually quit waiting, right? I remember in college being mindful of the professor and whether he had a master's degree or a doctorate because that would affect how long we had to wait for him to arrive, remember? It was 10 minutes if you had a master's, it was 15 if you had a doctorate, and don't you know we watched the clock? We didn't usually sit there quietly with our hands in our laps. We talked to each other to help the time go by as we were waiting. That's what our scripture is bringing to our attention today. How is it that we wait? And I don't think we're that good at waiting. And I dare say we're probably not as practiced as we need to be on waiting on the Lord. We might have some things we do in our waiting time. Does anyone just sit still at the stoplight? Or do you do something while you're at the stoplight? Waiting is hard. We were at a restaurant as a family a few Sundays ago. And um, our kids know of mine and Michael's um, constant, I'm sure it feels constant, um, attempt to pull people off their screens. And we um, make a lot of comments to our kids about put that down, how long have you been sitting there, what, how long have you been looking at that, what are you looking at, all of these kind of things. It feels constant. It feels constant to them. It feels constant to us. And so we were at this restaurant a few weeks ago, and one of my daughters said to me, Mom, look over there. So I turned around and I saw at this table a man and three children, and each of them had a device. Each of them was looking at their device. Now, just starting to tell you this story, I can feel my anger start to rise. I feel like that is a crime against humanity, a literal crime against literally humanity. And I wasn't sure if I could really approach the table in any civilized manner and be able to save face, me or them or anybody, so I didn't get up and talk. But I thought to myself, what are you doing? You are at the table of all places. At the table, it calls you together. You're actually facing each other. What are you waiting for? The waitress to come? Your food to arrive? Really, how long is it going to be? Can you not talk to each other just for a minute across the table about anything? Maybe what you order, do you always get the same thing? Is it always at this restaurant? Why do you like it here? Anything to talk about at this table. We are given 
this sacred time three times a day to sit down in fellowship with one another, to remember our humanity, to be sustained by food, because you know what? We're not a machine. We don't just get plugged in. That's not what mealtime is. It's a time to remember that we are only sustained in relationship and through creation, and that's what you've got right here. Why don't you put your phones down? So that is why I did not approach the table at the restaurant, because that's what I thought was probably going to come out. The Lord knows what's going to happen to that family when they actually have to relate to each other in a time of crisis. Something that has to be done, a decision they have to make together. Are they ready? Our, God, our lessons for this morning and the season of Advent invites us to learn how to wait. Because waiting is not sitting still with your hands in your lap. It's an active participatory thing. When we read in Isaiah about prepare the way for the Lord, make the, you know, make the rough mountains plain and level it, that's not a day job. You don't get that done in a nine-to-five work time. Think about the bridge on the way out of town. How long is that taken? We have to learn how to wait. And Advent gives us an excuse to do it. Advent is the season where it says, you know what, why don't you practice this just for a few weeks. See if you can get the hang of it, maybe in a, in a deeper way or a broader way. Root yourself in God. Look, it's not even hard. At least it's not, you don't need to have a doctorate to do it. It might be challenging, but you don't have to travel anywhere. It's not going to cost you anything. You are invited through the goodness of God to learn how to wait upon the Lord. And the things and the means to doing that are right there handy. It's making time for prayer. There are all kinds of ways to pray, but you don't have to show up for prayer with words. One of the favorite ways of many people is centering prayer for those who practice it. And it actually requires sitting still for 20 minutes, which is really a long time. The idea to be there and to be open to what God might be bringing to your attention and inviting you to be aware of, that's the prayer time. But maybe this is something you can try. Set your own timer for five minutes. Don't worry about it. Just see how you do sitting there for five minutes, learning how to listen to God. Reading scripture is another way to pray. You don't have to know what all of this is and how it came to be and who wrote it and what time period. That's a different way of engaging the scriptures, and I dare say it's one of the ones that's been most highly promoted. So perhaps you feel a little intimidated by the words on this paper. But just take this home. Just read it again. See what God is bringing to your attention just in reading it again. Let God do the invitation. Let God do the teaching. And if you're not sure, if you think you might be going off on a wild tangent, then you check in with the Christian community. Your brothers and sisters who studied scripture, who have active prayer lives, you can call me. This is how we learn how to wait. We learn how to wait in common worship. When we come together, you start to look around and say, oh gosh, God made you too. Oh, that's funny, God made me. And here we are together, adding our voices 
We have different opinions on all sorts of things, but God loves us, each one, and we are united along the whole globe with other people who come together to realize that our lives have been changed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he couldn't have died if he hadn't come. That's why we come together. This is how we learn how to wait. And in the waiting, God tends to us. The beautiful thing is, God isn't expecting us to check some things off the list in order to usher in the new kingdom. We might envision that heaven is another time and place, but we've been listening to the gospel according to Matthew all year long. We just stopped a couple of weeks ago. And the refrain that Matthew talks about again and again, that the kingdom has come near, Jesus says, the kingdom is among you. The kingdom has come near. Because in Jesus, it begins. So God doesn't wait for us to get our act together, to be holy, to be perfect, to be righteous, so that God can finally do something. No, God and God's mercy comes among us in the fact that our act isn't together, in the fact that we aren't perfect, in the fact that we're not righteous. God says, I'm going to be among you. In God's mercy and love, God comes among us and brings God's very self, the very mercy and love that we need. So the new kingdom isn't waiting on us. God has initiated it in Jesus. And in a somewhat mental flip, we come to see that Jesus then begins the new kingdom and strengthens us to help bring it about, whatever that means. It's not politics, I tell you. It's not going to be found in politics. The new kingdom is us and all of God's people living in the trust of transforming love. And we're only kind of sometimes good at it. Jesus comes to us and assists us, invites us, empowers us, strengthens us, feeds us, sustains us, encourages us to rest draws us close, assuring us that he is with us. That's what we know in Jesus coming among us. So in the birth of Jesus, the new kingdom has begun. And it makes possible our participation in it. You're going to hear this theology reflected in our closing hymn this morning, which I dare say, I can't sing it because I don't sight read, but the words themselves are quite powerful. And I hope that you will join in singing it robustly because it is a prayer. We live in the already and not yet time. Already God has begun bringing about the kingdom, but it's not yet here. In this time of waiting, we are invited to consider how we wait. What is it that God is inviting us to do so that we are prepared to participate in that which God is bringing about, a new kingdom for God's glory. Amen.